I think if you're just coming in, we're putting some more chairs in the back. There are also some more chairs up in the front. You can have my seat too. I'm not using it in this next few minutes, so that's available. There's a couple seats up here in the second row, so please uh, take a look. Join us. It's a great problem to have to be so full. Please do pray for us again, as I said last week, for us as elders, as we consider what to do with a full space here. Uh, Glenn and I are meeting with some of the hotel management on Tuesday. Pray for us as we consider what other options we might have here at the hotel. Uh, but as I said, what an exciting thing to have uh, here at the church as we proclaim God's word. Well, if you've been with us for the past three or four weeks or so, we've been looking at the book of First Peter. And if you've had the same experience I've had, it's been a joy to open up these pages of Holy Scripture and see what God has to say to us as expats. And we've seen so far that uh, as Christians, as expatriate Christians, we were chosen in Christ to be citizens of heaven. And that we're given the citizenship by being born again through the work of God alone. And last week we looked at how to live as citizens. How do we live in Dubai? And we saw that we are to be as those growing in holiness. We're not growing in holiness to obtain salvation or so that God would keep us saved. No, we grow in holiness out of our love for God because God is our Father, because God is a judge, and because He has provided a Redeemer for us in Christ Jesus. So He gives us the power to be holy and to strive to be holy as He Himself is holy. Well, now this morning in the verses we're going to look at, Peter continues with his charge to these Christians, and he asks them now to live as Christians together in such a way that magnifies Jesus. So, turn in your Bibles today, back to 1 Peter, you'll notice again towards the end of your Bible, if you've hit Revelation, you know you've gone too far, small little book inspired by the one true God and written by his servant, the Apostle Peter. And we'll start looking at verse 22 of chapter 1, and we've got a big section this morning, so we're not going to be able to cover every jot and tittle, everything in the passage Some things we may have to move over rather quickly. It's a dense passage with multiple layers of God's truth. But this morning, we're going to seek to answer one fundamental question about the Christian life. Here's the question. How can we have a transformed community? Specifically for us, how can we have a transformed community here in Dubai? So we've looked at how God changes us individually. Today, what does it look like for us as Christians together? Well, here's the outline. Here's the three things that Peter tells us in the passage. Three things to have a transformed community. One, we need new lives. Secondly, we need new longings. And then third, we need new ministry. So, Three things, new lives, new longings, and then new ministry. That will form our outline this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture. So let's take a look. We'll kind of read as we go this morning. First, we need new lives, and we see that in verses 22 through 25. Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Last week, we saw that Peter writes 12 verses of worshipful proclamation at the start of this letter before even giving a single command. That's because what God has done on our behalf always precedes our obedient response to him. Right? Our response is in obedience to what God has done and who God is. And so in this section, we see the next command, the next exhortation that Peter gives to us. He says that we are to love one another. And it's not just any kind of love, it's a pure and sincere love. Now the idea of sincerity means without play acting. Now back in biblical times when you were an actor, you had a mask and you held it up with a stick in front of your face. Maybe you've seen these theater masks before or or you've been to a masquerade ball. Now the actor would hold up a happy mask or a sad mask or a puzzled mask. See, these actors didn't have to worry about acting. They just had to recite their lines behind a facade, the fake face. It's where we get the idea of hypocrisy. Peter takes that word and he puts an alpha in front of it to negate it. And he says, we must love truthfully, not as a hypocrite. Don't let your love for others be phony, Peter says. Don't be two-faced. Now, when you walk into a car dealership, which some of us do to purchase a car, a salesperson walks up to you, and perhaps you've run into this, maybe he walks up to you and says, my brother, and he gives you a big hug. Now, you know you're either walking up to a holy man or another son of your mother and father or someone who's trying to sell you something. That's why he gives your children all those balloons and all that fancy chocolate that you don't really want them to eat before bedtime. No, the shrewd salesman wants something from you. Peter says, however, the love that we are to show one another is a sincere, it's a genuine love. It's this love that's to mark out the Christian. And why doesn't Peter say love everyone? Well, we know in other places in the Bible it says that. It says love your neighbor, and we know our neighbor is everyone. So why is Peter making this distinction here? He's telling Christians in various churches to love one another. It's because one way to transform your community is to see Christians love each other. It's easy, right? Well, perhaps you've noticed that some of the most difficult people to love are other believers. Unless we begin to point the finger across the aisle or behind you, Remember that this is true of us as well. Loving one another is easier said than done. You know, when you love your fellow Christian, this is a sign that you have had a revolution in your heart. You remember the story of Ananias 
in Acts chapter 9. There's a couple stories of a couple different guys. But in Acts chapter 9, God comes to this man named Ananias. And he says, Ananias, I have a little, little mission for you. There's a new convert in town. His name is Saul of Tarsus. Go to him. He's at Judas' house on Straight Street. And Ananias answers and says, Lord, I'm not sure you've heard about this guy. Isn't this the one who is going out and killing Christians? I'm wondering if you've done your background check, God. It's not the kind of guy who likes Christians. And indeed, if he's become a Christian, I'm afraid he's not the kind of guy that I want in my church. I don't know if I can trust him. But God says, Ananias, do what you're told. And Ananias went out to find Saul at Straight Street. And it's interesting when you read the passage there, he comes up to Saul and he calls him Brother Saul. Yes, you killed my mother-in-law, my sister-in-law, but he says Brother Saul. And through the love of Christ controlling him in that moment, Ananias extends the love of fellowship to Saul. This is something the new birth produces. This is love. Even when your brother or sister has offended you to the utmost, there is this sense of forgiveness. There is a sense of love. There's this incredible love for the family of God, regardless of how they've wronged you. And so Peter goes on, he says, in our passage, that we are to love one another earnestly. This has the idea of a runner stretching. In the Greek, they would use this word to describe a runner when they get to the finished line of a race. That as they yearn to come across that finishing running tape, they are stretching themselves to the utmost degree, earnestly desiring to get to that finish line, pushing their body as hard as they can, exerting all their energy, working as hard as they can. You know, it's the same word used to describe the earnestness of Christ's prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, friends, as you think about that kind of love, does this earnestness and purity reflect your love for other believers? How about other believers sitting in this room? Fellow church member, do you take time to look through the church covenant and to reflect on your life? Covenant is in our bulletin today if you want to take some time later on to reflect on it. And here's some examples that you would find in there. I mean, do you patiently forgive one another? Or do you hold grudges and avoid certain people on Friday mornings? Do you faithfully pray for others? If you're a member of this church, do you have a copy of the church directory on your computer or phone or and a paper copy, and are you walking through that praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you admonish your brother or sister when they're in sin? Or do you just let things go because you prefer not to be bothered? Do you seek ways to build each other up, to bear each other's burdens? Are you on alert for ministry opportunities around you, or... Do you wait for people to serve you or tell you where there's a need? Now, Peter calls us to this earnest love. But see, his main point is the reason we're able to do this. Now, this is key as you look at the passage. Why are we able to do this? Why are we able to love one another earnestly and with a sincere love? We see Peter here. He exhorts believers to love one another in verse 22. But he grounds this call to love on their conversion 
in verse 23. Peter says, since, since you've been born again by the power of the word. See, something fundamentally changes when you've been given the new birth. Because you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And we've been talking throughout 1 Peter of this concept of the new birth. It's the concept of regeneration. The new birth is a result of the immediate work of the Holy Spirit among, upon the human soul, once dead to the things of God, but now quickened to life. We've said that regeneration, being born again, is the start. It's the beginning of the Christian life, and that it's a monergistic work. Mono, meaning one being does it. It's one party involved in it. And we've said that we can't make ourselves born again. You can't choose to be born again. And therefore, there's no dis- distinction between a born-again Christian and a Christian. Right? The former is a redundancy. If you're born again by the Spirit of God... You are by name a Christian. And if you haven't, you're not. All Christians are born again. That's what it means to be a Christian. But see, all of us were born into this world DOA. It means dead on arrival. Right? We're all born biologically. And yet the Bible teaches us and our experience shows us that we are born dead spiritually. Our soul is dead to the things of God, and in order to embrace the things of God, a new birth is required. And how are we born again? Well, Peter tells us, not with perishable seed, but with imperishable. Perishable meaning that that seed that brought you to live on this earth. But Peter is saying that while that seed dies, the word of God is imperishable. It will not die. This imperishable seed is the word of God. That brings life. This is how life comes. Without the word, we are without the truth. I mean, specifically, verse 25, Peter says this word is the good news. I mean, fundamentally, at the center of our Bibles is this news that Jesus Christ saves sinners. It's the good news of the gospel that we hold out each week. And verse 22 then means that loving others must come fundamentally from obedience to the truth. Now, this is interesting. What what does the word obedience mean? Well, it's actually two words in the original language. It simply means hyper-hearing. Now, for a kid to be hyper-active means that they are active to a higher degree than other children. Now, I grew up with this term thrown around me. I was an active child. I know that might be a surprise to many of you today. I was a bit more active than normal. Well, obedience here, the idea that Peter has here, is the idea of hyper-hearing. It's this hearing beyond the simple sensory experience of sound striking our auditory nerves and being processed by the brain in such a way that you actually hear something. Now, the hearing that God wants his people to have is in the ears of the soul. Such hearing brings change to our lives because it is manifested in obedience. Hyper-hearing, as Peter describes it, is beyond simply hearing. 
And this obeying of which Peter speaks of is obedience to the truth. It's not enough that we simply sit here each week and hear the words of the gospel. It's not enough to recite some creeds or to sit in church each week and look at a statement of faith or memorize Bible verses or memorize catechism or songs as a child. No, words of truth resonating in your eardrums do not magically metabolize into saving faith. No, words that you hear don't magically metabolize into saving faith. See, hearing the truth is not enough. Hearing words of truth is not the end point. It's not the end goal. In order to be saved, Peter says, the Bible says you must have your soul purified, to use Peter's terminology for salvation. You must respond to the truth with the obedience of faith, repenting of your sin, believing in Christ to save you. Now, each of us is born with a built-in allergy to the things of God. That's what it means to be dead to God. On our own, we want nothing to do with Him. We need Him to give us new life. So, friends, if you're here and you're not born again, you're not a believer in Jesus, and you're sensing something in your soul stirring today, or perhaps as we've been studying First Peter the past month, you're sensing God doing something in your heart, maybe even now, Don't brush that off. Don't put that aside. Don't close that door. Don't justify yourself or ignore God's work in your heart. Maybe the message is starting to make sense to you. You're recognizing your sin against the Holy God has brought you judgment and death, but that through Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, you can be forgiven. Now, if this is you, ask God to give you faith. Ask God to open up your eyes. Ask God to cause you to be born again. Repent of your sin. Believe in Him. See, He is both willing and able to save all those who call on Him in repentance and faith. Those go together by God's grace. There is, this is no dead orthodoxy. The text says that believing this word brings life because it is a living and abiding word. It is trustworthy and worth your obedience. Now, you and I know that nothing is more worthless than yesterday's newspaper, right? We throw those away. When you load a news app on your smartphone or on your computer, all the old stories from yesterday are replaced with news ones. Now, Peter's saying the word of God, it never gets old. It's living, it's abiding forever. I like to quote, Martin Luther often here, he's that fiery German reformer back in the 16th century. He said some bold things and there was a time when he rebuked the peasants of his day because they would go out and spend money to go on pilgrimages to try and get power from relics. These pilgrims would go out to try to touch and to see dead artifacts like a thread from Joseph's pants or a milliliter of Mary's milk. They would try to go to be a part of these relics, to touch these relics, to pray over these relics, to get power. And Luther said, are you crazy? These things have no power in and of themselves. See, what you're holding here, what you have now been given freely, the word of God, it's the word that has power. It is living. It is abiding. What he was saying was, The truths of Hebrews chapter 4, the word is living and active. That 
Those powerless relics and superstitious trinkets are things that will fade away like human seed, which is no more permanent than the grass of the field. But the word of the Lord will remain forever. You know, in 1728, there's a French philosopher named Voltaire. He said that within 100 years, the Bible will cease to be read and that book will go away. What is ironic is that 50 years after he died, his home was purchased and the Genevan Bible Society moved in and started printing Bibles out of his house. (laughs) I think he was wrong. (laughs) Now, over the centuries, we've seen the Bible outlawed. We've seen the Bible burned and destroyed. We've seen men and women Heroes of the faith like William Tyndale and John Wycliffe who were burned alive because they gave their lives to translating the Bible so that more people could have a copy. And yet today it has been translated into over 3,000 languages. It has been read by more people than any other book in the history of the world, even while under the harshest opposition any book has ever faced. All flesh is like grass and flower. It fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The word is living. The word is active. The word brings life. A transformative community first needs new life. It's given by the Holy Spirit as he uses the word to change us. So we need new life. But secondly, we also need new longings. It's the second thing we see in our passage, the second point on transforming a community. We need new longings. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Peter writes, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it, You may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Since you have been born again by the word of God, you have a new life and a sincere love for other believers. Now, to transform your community, you need to long for the word of God yourself. Do you see the connection between the word of God in verses 23 through 25 in here? If you began your life with the word, now you are to sustain your life with the word. Peter commands us long for the word in the same way that babies long for milk. Now what happens when a baby is hungry? Babies don't just cry, do they? It sounds like the world is over for them. Everyone within a 20-meter radius knows that that baby is hungry. That baby is screaming. That baby longs for their mother because they know that without their mother's milk, they will die. Now, having milk is the difference between life and death. And Peter is saying that the food for a Christian is the Word of God. That's what Jesus means when he says in Matthew chapter 4, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You're going to have to do this if you want to remain faithful to verse 1. 
If in our community we're going to put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. No malice indicates the desire to harm or to injure. It has to do with a desire in the heart, a purposeful desire to wound or to hurt someone. In many ways, the other things listed there are just a description or a further description of the word malice. And Peter here uses the language of putting aside clothing. It's the idea of undressing and putting one's one's garments to the side. Peter says we are to take off the clothes of malice of our soul and to put them in the closet and leave them there forever. Take off all your deceit. Take off all your hypocrisy. Take off all your envy. Take off all your slander and put them away. The way you take these off is by instead clothing your soul with the word of God. Now friends, if you're not living and abiding in the word, you will destroy your life at some point. I guarantee it. At some point, your life will break down. So I ask, what is your relationship to your Bible? Men, instead of shepherding your family in the Word, do you place your Bible on Friday afternoons on your side table and leave it there for seven days only to pick it up again on Friday mornings on the way to the church meeting? I mean, fathers, do your children see you delighting in God's Word and putting it on your heart? And ladies, do you relegate your Bible reading to a Friday morning service or a Wednesday ladies Bible study or a small group? Are you relying on others to study the Bible for you? Or are you personally interacting with it? Moms, did your devotional life disappear when your quiet home is filled with the noise of lively children? Young singles, are you too busy building up your career that you are letting your soul wilt under the pressures of Dubai? Youth, are you placing your confidence in the flesh or are you mining the Bible for God's wisdom? Redeemer Church of Dubai, do you soak in the nutrients of God's word each day? Now, I'm not asking in a legalistic way, but in the same way that a baby doesn't skip a day of milk, Peter is saying, do the same. Long for this longing because apart from the word, you can't have life. It is our lifeline. It's a gift from God. And the word feeds our souls. And so eat it up. But eat it up like you would a five-course meal. Enjoy it. Take your time with it. Talk to God. Read. Talk to God some more. Read some more. Meditate on it. Take notes on it. Memorize it. Come back to it. Think about it throughout your day. Read it as you wake up. Pray through it as you go to bed. See, this is not a normal textbook that you read to memorize facts. It is a living book. I once heard a pastor say that a Bible that is coming apart is owned by a person who isn't. There's a lot of truth in that. Because you'll find as you read God's word that your self-justification is shrunk by the light of Christ just as a cancerous tumor is shrunk by radiation. 
As you taste and see that the Lord is good, it reshapes everything about you. It reshapes the way you work, the way you parent, the way you fight sin, the way you love your spouse, the way you help your friends, the way you help those you don't like. No, friend, it changes everything. I love this story back from the 1950s, so I'll relay it to you this morning. It's a story about a humble villager in eastern Poland who received the Bible from a lay preacher named Michael Billister. This man in this village, he read the Bible and he was converted. He read about Jesus and he repented and believed. Now, Billister, this man who gave that first Bible, he came back to the village a few years later and he found out remarkably that 200 in the village had become Christians from reading that one Bible. Now, all the believers were gathering to hear this preacher preach. And instead of asking the members there to recite the customary testimonies that they recited each time, instead, Billister asked if anyone there would like to recite any Bible verses from memory. And it's funny because one man rose up in that moment and he said, Brother, perhaps we misunderstood you. Did you mean verses or did you mean chapters? And Billister was astonished and he said, are there some of you here who could recite actual chapters of scripture? And they said that they could. And so they began their recitation, which probably took all night because 13 of them knew half of Genesis and the entire books of Matthew and Luke. Another had committed all 150 Psalms to memory. And combined, Billister wrote that the 200 together knew virtually the entire Bible by memory. They had so treasured and longed for God's word that the one Bible that they had was passed around from family to family throughout the week. And then it was brought together for their weekly worship gathering. It was said that that old book had become so worn that its pages were barely legible. Now one book was so prized that they would copy it, that they would commit it to memory And their lives were changed. Their love for one another was revolutionized. The way they cared for each other and bared each other's burdens. Everything changed when the word of God was implanted on their souls. But friends, this is what it means to long for the pure spiritual milk. Oh, may this be said of our community here at Redeemer. I pray that it would be said of us. I pray that it would be evident in our lives that we would long for the word of God, that we would delight in it in times of need and in times of delight. And instead of escaping reality by burying ourselves in mind-numbing activity, that we would go instead to the soul-satisfying well of God's word. Only then will we have anything else to give one another. Only when God's word has been implanted in our souls do we have anything to speak to one another. Do we have any encouragement to give to one another? Do we have any true love to show one another? It's to be transformed. We need and thirdly, we need a new ministry. It's the third thing if you're taking notes as we walk through the passage. New lives, new longings. Four through ten. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, there's so much in those verses. We're barely able to scratch the surface this morning. But we see here in these final verses that as a Christian, we've been given a new ministry. To see a transformed community, we must all take part in it. We see that Peter, he's so thrilled at the very thought of this that he mixes metaphors. But the argument is relatively easy to follow. He says that we're stones, and he says that we're priests. Let me explain what that means. First, he says we're like stones. Peter says as a Christian, you're like a stone, and yet by itself a stone is of little use. But joined with others, it becomes part of a building. A living stone has a purpose to be part of a whole. And we see that in this building style of this day, the cornerstone, this cornerstone will be the first stone to be put in place. Since both the angle and level of the walls would be extended from it, the cornerstone must be pure. It must be square and true. It, it had to be perfect. So for the church, Christ is our cornerstone. This is what Peter's saying in verses 6 and 8, that he's chosen, that he is precious, and yet he was rejected. This was the very story of Jesus' life. And so we are the living stones that come together around this cornerstone to build a temple on earth today. This is why we don't need a physical temple anymore. God says that you and I are now the presence of God here on earth, that he indwells each of us individually through the Spirit, and together we are in his presence. We are his presence. We are his ambassadors. Now today, if people want to go to the presence of God, they don't go to a place They go to a people. And so what he's saying is this. For the Christian, our new ministry is that we build our whole lives on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Our family is built on Jesus. Our marriages are built on Jesus. Our jobs are built on Jesus. Our legacy is built on Jesus. Our church is built on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And some people, they don't get that. They'll say, well, why does Jesus have to be the cornerstone? I mean, can't you have money or sex or fame or power or glory or intelligence or race or ethnicity? I mean, couldn't you have something else be the cornerstone and we could kind of just get Jesus and make him one of the bricks, make him one of the other stones, make him one part of our lives, but not the main part, not the chief cornerstone. Can we put something else in there? And as Christians, we say, no, no, it's got to be Jesus. It's Jesus because everything rests on him. We do that because Jesus is the only one who could carry that load. 
If anyone or anything else holds that place of cornerstone in your life, then your life will crumble. Your life will shatter. Your life will fall down and be destroyed at some point. And friends, is Jesus your cornerstone? As you look at your life today, is he your cornerstone? Not just a brick in the wall, like he's someone you take notice of for a couple hours a week in addition to what you really focus on. No, we're not only chosen, Paul says, to be living stones, we're also chosen to a priesthood. Peter switches his metaphors there in the middle of the passage from a structure to those who function in that structure. And he says we're priests. Now this is a mind-bending concept. And yet, like many of you, you grew up in, like many of you, I grew up in a Catholic church with some Catholic influence. And when we hear the word priest, we think of a holy guy in a robe, one set apart, one sacred. And that's not what Peter's talking about here in the passage. He's comparing us to the priests of the Old Testament. The priests, we see in the book of Leviticus, had a lot of work to do. They worked with their hands. They kept the temple operating. They offered regular sacrifices. They served people. They led everyone in the worship of the true God. And what Peter's saying is now, you and I as believers are a nation of priests. That as believers, all of us serve in this capacity. We know the priest offered sacrifices. And so verse 5 says that as priests today, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices. We see that in Romans 12 as well, our spiritual sacrifice of worship, our spiritual sacrifice of service. All of us can do this. All of us ought to do this. All of us are called to do this. Fellow believers, maybe some of you don't know this, but you are no further away from God the Father than any other Christian. You are no further away from God the Father than any Christian you admire, any pastor or preacher you admire, any elder of this church. Because there's one mediator between man and God, the God-man, Jesus Christ. See, as a Christian, you have the same access to God as any other believer. Because of Jesus Christ, access to God the Father is given equally to all God's children, and together we are a royal priesthood. You can't get any closer to God because Jesus Christ, if you have faith in him, has already reconciled you to God. Now, in most religions, there's a hierarchy, isn't there? There are certain holy people that are closer to God than the rest of us. What Peter says is that through Jesus, all people have equal access, a holy priesthood. There's no special class of Christians. It means that all Christians, all of us, together serve in ministry. That's true that some of us work in full-time ministry. Some of us are called to help coordinate and facilitate some of that ministry in a full-time paid capacity. But some of you, you have other vocations, and yet you are in ministry to others nonetheless. Your holy priesthood works itself out as cabin crew, or as an electrician, or a mom, or a dad, or possibly in the hospitality industry, or a teacher, or a student. You know, all of us are ministers of the gospel in this sense. There's no special class of Christians, no caste system of Christians elevating elder wives among other 
ahead of other women, heading up, putting up elders ahead of other men in the church. Putting small group leaders is more important than other Christians. No, we are all members of one body with Christ as our head. We are all to do ministry, all of us. And there's not one too small of a task for us. In priestly ministry, there's mundane things done as well as great annual sacrifices. All were important and all were needed. So we offer spiritual sacrifices. The second thing we see there in verse 9 is priests. We are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. Now, in the Old Testament, the priests, the Levitical priests, were given 48 different cities among the nations in the land of Canaan. They were not given their own land, but 48 places to be scattered throughout the nations. God didn't want his priests to clutter together in a holy huddle. They were to be spread out throughout the nation. Why? Well, for this very purpose, verse 9, to proclaim the excellencies of him, the excellencies of God, so they could hold out the word to a dying world. They were to be the mouthpiece of God. And now, get this, that's you and me. We get this privilege of, of holding out God's word. Now, I get to preach on Friday mornings, and this is a blessing and a privilege, and I love to do it. But every one of us who is born again is a holy and a royal priesthood. That we get to tell others of the truths of verse 10. That once we were not God's people, but now we are His. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy from God. That we have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and brought to the kingdom of light. Oh, friends, we gather here on Friday mornings only to scatter the rest of the week. We are brought in so we go back out. We are saved so that we can be sent. This is what our community is to be. We do this with non-believers in evangelism, but we also do it with other believers. And we call that discipleship. We get together for a lunch or a coffee with another believer and If you've never done this, if you've never engaged in a discipling relationship, here's what I mean. And here's how you get started. If you've never been in one, you grab your Bible and you make a meeting time with a friend and you sit across a table from a friend. It can even just be one other person and you take your Bible with you. Both of you, you bring your Bibles and you just open it up. Maybe you decide that you're going to study the book of Colossians and you want to study the supremacy of Jesus. You want to see how that applies to all things and you sit there at your table and you open up your Bible to the book of Colossians and maybe you take five, six, seven verses at a time. Maybe one of you reads through it and you begin talking about it. You begin looking at what is Paul saying to the church at Colossae? What did it mean to the people then? Then you ask each other, what does it mean for us today? How are we to live in light of this passage? You confess your sins to one another. You confess how you've fallen short of what God is saying here. And then you pray for each other. You keep each other accountable throughout the week. Then you meet up again and maybe you take the next few verses. And you just talk scripture to one another and encourage each other in it. You hold out the excellencies of God to the world. No, God transforms our community. He gives us He gives us life, gives us new longings, and he gives us this ministry to be a priesthood together. And we do all this because back in verse 4, we see that Jesus is the chosen and precious one. 
He is the choice. No one else is our mediator. There is no other name given under heaven by which one must be saved. Now, Christ alone has been received by God, the God-man, God in the flesh, as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Now, he is precious to us. He is our delight. He is our security. He is our high priest. He is our advocate who stands before God the Father. He is our wisdom. He is our light. As a Christian, his righteousness has become ours. We are now adopted into his family. We are alive because he has died. We are alive because Jesus Christ has died on the cross to save us from our sins. This truth transforms our community. That's why you see this table set up for communion this morning. It's what we remember that we have a Redeemer. In just a minute here, we will approach the Lord's table and taking part in communion together as a church family. I want to encourage you, if you're a believer, you're repenting of your sin, we invite you to take part of this meal. But there may be some of you who just need to sit back this morning, you need to repent of any lingering sin. You know, back in the Reformation, during Luther's time, there was a phrase called Coram Deo. It was one of the rallying cries of the 16th century Protestant Reformation. This two-word phrase literally means before the face of God. It's the idea that though God's face is not visible to us, every second of our lives is lived before the face of God. We can't see him, but he can see us. And so we need to cultivate a kind of God consciousness in which we realize that everything we do is done before the face of God. That's what Peter's been calling us to in the book of 1 Peter here. We are to be aware of living our lives before the face of God. Friends, how's your life? How are you doing? Are you longing for God and His Word? Or if you were to answer honestly, is there something else you're longing for? Or someone else you're longing for? Is there some secret sin in your life that you need to confess and flee from this morning? Is there something you've been longing for that you need to repent of? That you need to take off like you take off a piece of clothing and throw it aside never to pick it up again? Well, before taking part in communion, I want us to take some time this morning to look over our own soul. So let's take some time now in silence reflecting on our lives, confessing any sin before the Lord, and seeing if we may take part in communion today in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's take some time now. Well, if you're here this morning, and as you consider this message, if you're still wrestling with what to do with the good news about whether to believe in Jesus, to trust in him, to save you, we're glad you're here. We're thankful that you're here. I pray that you would come to see Christ for all his glory and that as verse 4 says, you would come to him. Because the only other alternative, Peter says, is to reject this cornerstone and to fulfill a destiny that leads to destruction. Now, I encourage you to consider this message of hope as the believing community takes part of communion. We do this each month as a visual display and a reminder to us that Jesus Christ gave his life as a ransom for us. It reminds us that Jesus died, that he is alive, and that one day he will come back again. But I encourage you, if you're not a believer yet, 
If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then let the bread and let the cup pass you by as it comes around. For this is a meal for those who've already trusted in Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 gives us instruction. It says, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Well, as the servers and musicians come up to the front, let's take some time now in prayer for our souls. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we come before you today as broken people. We know the truth, and yet too often we live as if we have forgotten what you've done for us. Or maybe we've just gotten lazy. Maybe we've become enraptured by the things of this world, and instead we've longed for these things of the world, and we've fed our souls with garbage. Lord, forgive us of our sin. Help us to understand your mercy and grace. That as believers, we no longer live in shame, but we have been redeemed in Christ alone. We pray that Jesus would be precious to us. That we would be overcome by his love. That we would proclaim his excellencies from the rooftops of our lives. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.